welcome to Brown Bag, a podcast series looking at the interconnections between media, social media in particular, democracy, politics and technology from a Global South perspective. My name is Sanjana Hattatua and I am a special advisor at the ICT for Peace Foundation. There are two Western gazes, right? There is the Western gaze that looks upon what impacts them, what impacts their population. And then there's the Western gaze that looks at other markets. So it isn't that these companies are not looking at South Asia, they are, but they're looking at it from profit. The populists that would like to live in a dark room and issue edicts and, you know, have people, their citizens completely fall in line with their edicts no longer occurs because people start talking and things come about. So therefore, there is, that is perhaps our biggest um, tool as well on human rights. Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm speaking with Minakshi Ganguly, the South Asian Director of Human Rights Watch. Minakshi, thanks for joining me on this podcast, as I understand it, on your sabbatical. Thank you so much, Adina. Yes, I'm enjoying my sabbatical tremendously. I think many of us would be quite envious, (laughs) given (laughs) that we are faced with what we are uh, in Sri Lanka and in India and many other parts of South Asia, and we don't seem to be able to catch a break. So... You know, good on you for for taking a holiday in the middle of all that is going on and wrong. Well, I did have to come out of sabbatical when when trouble started in Sri Lanka, only because uh, you know there was briefings that we had to do yeah. to try and make sure that uh, protests remain peaceful and the security forces didn't go a bit crazy in trying to curb these protests. So. Not entirely sure how successful you've been in that regard, but (laughs) conversations, our conversations are only with diplomats and considering (laughs) right now Sri Lanka is looking for financial support, one would hope at this point, at least the government will be a little bit more cautious about how they treat um, people who are really uh, suffering because of poor economic decisions. My understanding is that what you and I think is of no consequence or little consequence to how things <laughs> pan out, but that may be the a, a, a wider or larger parable. Listen, I, you know, I, again, I really appreciate you joining. Um, as I think I told you before we started, um, I, my interest in the podcast was driven by, not solely, but largely by um, what's happened in, say, the past two years in the course of the pandemic to our region. And given that this is focused on technology, so much has also happened in the world of social media. And a lot of it, including revelations of Haugen, uh, you can talk about what's come out more recently with regards to India. A lot of it seems to be, as you think, uh, as I think you'll agree with me, from a Western gaze. Mm -hmm. Um, Not least because it's been reported in the in the global north and in the west, but also because it seems to be linked to this idea that the Silicon Valley and social media companies really have their largest user bases in America, which is quite wrong. You know, it is India that I think is the harbinger uh, and preface 
professors, so much of what the rest of the world countenances. So I wanted to talk about some of those issues and place South Asia front and center, uh, and who better than you. Now, let's start with the confession that I made before I started as well. I said I was so involved and engaged and tired by Sri Lanka, and then secondarily keeping up with India as well, that I really don't know what's happening in our region. Yeah. So, Meenakshi, I mean, if you were to be asked, a, a, it's a simple question, but I suppose a very hard answer. You know, what to your mind? Has been some of, have been some of the significant changes in South Asia as a consequence of the pandemic? Yeah, well, first of all, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier, which is the Western case. And I, I want to talk about that only because there are two Western cases, right? There is the Western case that looks upon what impacts them, what impacts their population. And then there's the Western case that looks at other markets. So it isn't that these companies are not looking at South Asia. They are, but they're looking at it from profit. They're yeah. looking at it as a business thing. They're not looking at it as an impact uh, conversation. And the reason I'm saying that is because right now there's all these inquiries going on after the Trump, uh, after the U.S. elections, and 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 the Trump supporters that uh, that uh, acted up in, in D.C. And there is conversation there about social media and what might have, but we have not seen that similar kind of hard look really um, at what, what happened um, in, in our part of the world, in the South Asian context. So just wanted to flag that. Now to go back to your, to your question, um, if we look from Afghanistan to Myanmar, right? So we look from, from west to east, I, we have a massive refugee crisis. Um, you know, Afghanistan for all the policies, again, of the West and the sort of hurried departure that, that um, occurred uh, led by the US, we've had an, had a refugee unprecedented refugee crisis, people desperate to leave, planes stopped, not being able to leave, uh, you know, and, and people who had believed somewhat in a, in a democratic process, who were now at risk as the Taliban entered the capital. And on the other side is Myanmar, where, of course, since 2017 and even prior, we've had the Rohingya sort of stuck in limbo, waiting to go back home. So, in, in fact, South Asia is kind of bracketed by these two sort of refugee crises. Then, of course, there is the middle and, and you know, what has happened in South Asia in recent times. And we've had, uh, you know, in Nepal, of course, a number of governments have come and gone in, the, in, in through this process. And right now there is, uh, you know, there is a, uh, there are, Nepal politics is interesting because the alliances keep shifting. So, you know, enemies of yesterday become friends of today, but unfortunately the policies and in terms of human rights has not always been up and center. But the reason I raise Nepal first is because Nepal, uh, the war ended in 1996. And since then, there has been this effort at transitional justice for the for the conflict and the abuses that occurred during the conflict. And that's relevant because Sri Lanka, the war ended in 2009. And again, repeatedly, we are being told that, oh, well, there will be, you know, there will be transitional justice, it can be a domestic mechanism. And going by Nepal's experience, we can kind of assume that it will not occur in Sri Lanka mm. as well. Mm. So the other part of this is the conflicts, the internal conflicts that occur um, in, in South Asia. Um, in terms of governance, the other thing is that, uh, again, there is a, 
the challenge of I'm, I'm just coming sort of shrinking myself into India. So on, again, going from west to east, Pakistan has had massive protests, massive political protests. Um, but because Pakistan has uh, has a military that that kind of almost uh, uh, holds the reins to almost anything that that is decided uh, in the end Imran Khan's government was toppled uh, largely because I think it lost favor with the military um, Bangladesh side uh, again the government has used the military it's the, it's the reverse where the government does hold power but is using the military in in the most uh, awful ways and therefore uh, most recently the US has announced sanctions on on a on a, on a on a rapid action battalion, which has been responsible for extrajudicial killings and disappearances. And then if you come middle to, to India, uh, we are seeing uh, India as facing enormous challenges. These are not challenges that, that have come back, uh, have existed since 1947. This level of public um, sort of despair over, over, over religious divide has you know, it's it's like a revisiting this this level of public hate, and unfortunately, almost entirely to be to be um, to be blamed upon upon the ruling uh, BJP because what they've done is use religious divide to try and win votes, and eventually they lose control of this because the narrative shifts and narrative shifts. And to go back to your interest, the, all of these narratives shift because of what plays out on social media and and WhatsApp and such like. So there we are. It's a it's a region not very very very. It is. It, it, no, it it really is quite bleak. Um, and you know, there's so much that we can pick up on it. But you know, just a personal story. I mean, when when Afghanistan, the proverbial excrement hit the hit the ceiling fan. Um, you know, I'm suppose um, many of us were called upon to assist with how. Uh, in my case, it was how social media companies should respond. Right. And it's deja vu, right? It's happened with Myanmar. This happened again after Afghanistan with the Ukraine. Yes. And it does, you know, I'm, I, I'm at a loss for words, Minakshi, around the degree to which I now believe the ability of these companies to absorb lessons and respond in a meaningful manner, you know, notwithstanding the magnitude of the challenges that they are confronted with on the ground. Um, you know, what what was it like you as HRW to kind of respond to Afghanistan, Myanmar, the challenges of India, now Sri Lanka? Now, have you seen any late motives in that regard where you're called upon to respond to much the same things year after year with no discernible at least to you, uptake on lessons that should have been learned? Well, I don't know if there are what we mean by lessons to be learned, right? What lesson do we want to learn? If you speak in terms of the, of the companies themselves, their lessons are largely profit. Are they, are they being able to enter markets where they are finding more subscribers and more users? That is their level of success. Any, any executive would tell you that. That's their measure. In that case, they're succeeding. The, and not to sort of uh, forget the fact that, social, that South Asia 
um, communication, information, and 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 uh, the ability to learn new things is has been enabled to a large part by these by by these sort of platforms. This is. And we know that we know that there is the, the connection that that technology in a way has enabled a lot of good the and we should acknowledge that because you know this is there are literacy levels are very low certainly the penetration level of governance is very low in large parts of south asia so you know the ability to for people to communicate has been much better i mean one example for instance is um, the flooding that we are witnessing right now in in uh, in uh, assam and in, in northern bangladesh and you find that uh, people are able to communicate when there mm. are risks there is you know so, so all of those are good things mm. but was it good that drove these platforms perhaps not right good emerges so so i think that's where the prop the challenge lies doesn't it the challenge lies in intent and the intent was not necessarily it, good was by the way yeah. what was what what they wanted was customers so therefore i'm saying that you know what is the motivation is also uh, well, they would like to they would like us to believe that good was center and forward i mean there's all these the for good um you know uh, you know is 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 always an appendage to uh, the companies you know you have facebook for good twitter for good you know all these good initiatives <laughs> and they would have they would have you believe that that's what they were interested in listen i have a personal anecdote i mean to kind of counter what you just said though i do agree with it this is just to kind of um yeah. be the devil's advocate i was in uh, kabul before everything went pear shaped and uh, there was a gardener and mm -hmm. he was addicted to at the time a very sophisticated uh, you know fairly high-end samsung phone yeah. and i was curious because i didn't speak pashto so i took my translator and went up to him and i spoke to him i said first how did you get this phone and yeah. then two i saw him he was on on, on facebook and he was completely literate i said what are you doing on facebook so it turns out that his uh, grandchildren and children have pulled together to get him a birthday gift and that was the phone uh-huh and he was completely illiterate so all he did was to he had been taught how to like photos right and that's all he did aside from prayers and the quran which were an odd which was an audio app um that you know at a at, at prayer time um you know uh said you know said what the prayer time was and then also afforded him verses of the quran but then I kind of talked to my translator and I said, listen, can you explain to me how this works? Because, it's, you know, there were some apps that uh, were quite curious. And he said, basically, what the Taliban did was when you took a phone to get it uh, recharged in the sense of put money to it, hmm. they used to put apps that, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting, right? So they used to put apps that the end user thought was Google. So when the app was basically promoting Taliban propaganda, I kept encountering in the workshops and the conversations that I had that Google was telling me this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So they, they thought because of that interest, interesting transaction that you would never know until, until and unless you were part of that, you know, that you uh -huh. went on the ground and, and, and figure that out. Um, they thought that it was Google that was selling this. And, you know, when I mentioned these to the, to these to the companies, they have no clue. You know? And that brings me to the broader point, you know, with um, Corona Jihad, you know, in mm -hmm. early 2020 in India, you know, we had comparable things that you know, these are very serious things. Mm -hmm. um, the companies didn't have Bangla 
uh, I think till 2020, Facebook didn't have, you know, and so that, you know, moderation and classifiers didn't exist for major Indian languages still as recently as a couple of years ago. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know whether you share my, you go from anxiety to frustration to resignation that the companies with their largest markets that reside in South Asia still don't value us enough to give uh, you know, to make the investments to keep their customers safe. It, it boggles my mind, Meenakshi. Well, um, again, who are their customers? Who, who will, if they are intermediaries, who do they have to keep most happy? So, so no, let's not, yes, I, I, I would actually like to believe that all things being equal, they would like to keep their customers safe and would like them to be informed and would like their platform to be a sort of free space for exchange. But that isn't how it works, right? Because what, is, what, what has happened is that these platforms have been harnessed to convey messaging. And of course, all of us use it. All of us use this to convey our particular messaging, except that um, political forces clearly have much more capacity to do so. So, you know, in India, we've discovered many sort of little uh, apps and so on that have been used to, for instance, trend or make viral a particular message or, or the capacity to sort of, uh, um, you know, use influencers to promote a particular message. That's because they have the resources. Mm. So it's not a level playing field. Mm. Now, if it's not a level playing field mm. in which there is the likelihood of of um, hate campaigns and such like being promoted by uh, vested interests who are more powerful, then concern becomes is if they are the client. And I think what you were referring to earlier about India is that that's what had happened, right? Who did Facebook treat as their client? And it wasn't the end user. It wasn't you and I and our little Facebook accounts with our 1500 friends. <laughs> it wasn't right. It was it was these big companies that were using this for for their own, own own purposes. And if that message was not something that met their social conscience standards, they still held back because yeah. the market is too big, which goes back to my initial problem about the gaze. How do they gaze? And the yeah. gaze, unfortunately, is profit and market. Well, it's not just the companies, is it? It's also a political party in India, um, just as it was a family in Sri Lanka. And so, you know, and just as it was, you know, a political party in the United States. So, I mean, you know, again, we can talk about this a bit more. But, you know, listen, I what I do now is to look at the manner in which toxic I call it a digital novichok. A novichok mm -hmm. meaning, you know, that, you know, it's the poison, but this poison is digital and you can't also literally see it. It poisons society from within. And I really peg Sri Lanka's cataclysmic, catastrophic collapse to what I have been studying for well over a decade in how propaganda, myths and disinformation and information disorders were instrumentalized by the ruling family, the Rajapaksas, to their gain, to their benefit, and to the country's net loss. How has disinformation, in particular, but also the regional, uh, the region's tryst to use a Nehruvian phase, not in the way that he intended it ever, I think, with 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 information disorders impacted Minakshi 
you know, what you do, what HRW does, what you're interested in, which is rights and governance. Particularly, by the way, again, I mean, focusing on, on the pandemic years, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's really got bad in these two years. Well, the one thing that happened in the pandemic years is because, of course, it brought in the lockdown. And what happened with the lockdown is people therefore got stuck to their devices because yeah. everything uh, was happening over devices, including conversations you and I have had. Um, and therefore, more devices uh, meant more access to this kind of uh, um, information and so on. So therefore, there was a ready market. Now, that's what I'm saying, that you see, there is a ready market of consumer. Then what do you do with that market? So, so during the pandemic, I think people began to recognize that, you know, like we found, for instance, even data security, you know, the apps that were being used for students to study were, were collecting information about about uh, um, about about children. The fact that the they, governments recognized that there was or advertisers recognized really that there were more, much more children online because they were by by the very nature, you know, on Zoom classes and such like was that they started targeting those markets. So what I'm saying is that Yes, the pandemic brought many more people online because they had to. But as soon as you do that, there are all these other things that come in much more. I mean, look at the ready market. Look at the amount of information that has been collected, amount of data that has been collected. This, if you're talking about South Asia, that's like a billion and a half people. You know that that level of information is now available. That market is available. I, you know, so was it also used badly now i want to go back a little bit to the to the political narratives particularly i would say in india and and sri lanka where there is this sort of very populist uh, um, um, embrace of 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 the political narrative you know we are your saviors we are the strong people we will we will protect you and such like which is both 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 the bjp and and uh, i said pp or whatever the rajapaks yeah the rajapaks yeah. yeah so now and both have used this and to both, they used it to great effect, right? They've used it to the point where, oh, don't keep fussing about justice. We want development. Don't keep fussing about, you know, these minorities. They are they are problematic. And don't you see that? You know, that that became part of the public discourse, right? It became part of what people were saying. I mean, today, just before I'm joining your call, I was reading about um, Kashmiri students who had who can't be given can't get apartments on rent in Delhi because they're Kashmiri Muslim and you know that is that is a sort of partly fear oh my god at which point will the state come and you know sort of conduct a raid and then my house gets locked up partly it is just plain bigotry and that conversation about oh no Muslims are bad now this happened in both Sri Lanka and in and, and in and in uh, and in India and and we certainly saw it play out at its worst in both these places during the pandemic when when both these communities were blamed for some reason for for the spread of the virus you know as much as we know that asian americans in in the us got blamed because called because trump called it china virus over here it was as you said corona jihad and such like so the the political messaging that comes from the leadership also transforms itself into how public uh, the public uh, views it but that said i will also flag the other you know populist leaders are not always the best government uh, cannot deliver the best governance so they make very big promises mm. you see they pretend that they are they they know governance better than anyone else and you know as soon as they're in office they're going to solve 
poverty, they're going to solve corruption, they're going to deliver services, and people actually vote them for that. They don't really, you know, hate is, an, is a byproduct which is bit attractive up to a point. But as we are seeing in Sri Lanka, when it's come down to the fact that you failed in governance, that poor decisions have ended up bringing you to a place where people are out on the street saying, where is my meal, yeah. then, then populism doesn't cut it any more than in India. And in India, you're seeing now thousands and thousands of people, possibly all BJP voters, who are now out on the streets saying, you know, what kind of decision have you made that is going to impact my livelihood? So eventually governance has to come. And that, you know, so the hate, the, the using of social media for hate might be useful up to a point. And the last thing I want to say is, as soon as the message turns, as soon as social media and the, these platforms are not attractive to promote their messaging, but is instead promoting the criticism, legitimate criticism of their policies, you will find there's a crackdown. Suddenly, internet is cut. Yeah. Suddenly, WhatsApp groups are being challenged. Yeah. You know, suddenly everyone's phone is being confiscated to say, how are you planning your protest? So it changes. So I wanted to flag that as well. No, I think you draw a very nuanced picture. Um, you know, I mean, actually, I am informed also by what I read about contemporary Russia, mm -hmm. where what Mr. Putin is doing, as bizarre as it may sound to listeners who don't know and have read the same as what I have, um, I think this is familiar to you and I, it is not a communicated within the country in terms of any anti-war opposition. And worse, there are stories that the POWs in Ukraine have been imploring their parents, you know, once they're captured, they're free of having to carry Mr. Putin's propaganda, and they've been imploring their parents to help stop the war. Right. And you know what? The parents refuse to recognize that. They cannot. You know, you have a society that cannot deal with a, 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 an alternative to what they have constructed as a consequence of decades of disinformation. And I kind of see that, you know, in Sri Lanka, which I'm very familiar with, we had the extraordinary Aragalea, you know, Aragalea means, uh, you know, revolution or struggle in Sinhalese, you know, the, the, the go home, go to, uh, uprising. And it was, you know, unlike anything the country's ever seen. And we can have a conversation about that later. But, you know, one of the things that happened with social media is it was a bloom and blossom and spread of content opposed to the Rajpaksas in a way that literally the country's never seen before. Right. Now, what's happened today, though, is that as the Aragalia recedes and the existential crisis of just how to get through the day has come to the fore, now you see again the disinformation of the Rajapaksas, by the Rajapaksas, and for the Rajapaksas, taking center stage again. And again, you see this frustration around people who cannot question the reason for why the country is in the mess today, and are going back to, you know, that savior mentality, that same right. populist discourse. So my question in that context, Meenakshi, is that I am increasingly of the opinion that disinformation really is a societal virus that has a, it stunts society. It really stunts one's ability to even when presented with an alternative that is 
critical of the reason why you are going hungry, for God's sakes. They still can't grasp it. Would you say that that is something that you feel or see or agree with? And if not, why not? So, yes, the disinformation is a massive challenge, you know, because obviously in, 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 a, in an ideal world, I'm actually all for a maximalist freedom of expression. In, 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 but that challenge has not, is now, that is now a challenge because of where the platforms, because the platforms yeah. are, are, are driven by algorithms, are driven by, uh, you know, sort of uh, what makes footprints and such like. So it isn't, a, it isn't, a, you know, a sort of soapbox uh, debate any longer. And therefore, you're right, because what happens, therefore, is that the dis disinformation is spread faster. I, I often speak of my parents in that regard, mm. because they're old, older generation who would I know who would say, oh, this has come out in the newspaper. The newspapers are saying this. It was a, you know, at that point of time, that big thing that the papers have reported something. And now they tend to treat that same, the, the, the platforms as news source in the same way. So they believe it to be the truth. Mm -hmm. So therefore, disinformation is an interesting thing because it isn't, people believe that to be the truth. Mm -hmm. the, Russian, the Russian parent believes that mm -hmm. Putin is doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Mm. And you, you know, you were an idiot to have gotten caught and stop complaining because we are a man. You know that, but that's because that is the narrative that is being fed to them that they do believe. Um, but there is a counter to this because often you will find that states are actually the most vociferous when it comes to uh, countering, to saying that there must be, you know, legislation to counter disinformation. That's why I said that I was a bit concerned about this freedom of expression um, thing, because then it becomes subjective. What yeah. is this disinformation? Yeah. Who is who is who is wrong? And we've seen that, I'm afraid, in the biased way that the Indian state, for instance, has treated uh, protests, you know, pro-government protests, Hindus are not being, despite the massive amounts of hate and vitriol that they spread, are not punished. Um, you know, other activists, Muslims, their messaging is almost always immediately, oh, you're disrupting communal harmony, you're causing religious hurt, that narrative comes in. So, you know, if the state is the arbiter to decide, then we are always going to end up in on the wrong end because they will only want to promote their own uh, views. And it's a tough one, isn't it? Because here in New Zealand now, after my doctoral research, I'm dealing with regulation, dealing with in turn containing curtailing and controlling the seed and spread of harms online. And it's, a, it's an interesting discussion here in the context of Aotearoa New Zealand. But what I always try to say is that because we are all part of the Commonwealth, that countries like India and governments like mine will always adapt and adopt yeah. the, the language yeah. to stifle FOE, freedom of, of expression. And so that's the, that's the hard thing. I mean, if it's Section 230 or with the... You know, the stuff that's coming out of the United Kingdom now or the new um, regulations on disinfo from the European Union. Yes. Um, I think that our government, or even like from across Malaysia and Singapore, which the, the Rajpaksas have been very keen to, 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 to copy paste from, including POFPA, uh, yeah. which out of Singapore is, is I mean, it's, it's bad enough in Singapore. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, entrenchment in Sri Lanka will be disastrous for first principles. 
but that's that's a that's a conversation that many don't seem to be even aware needs to be had right you know it's 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 because you know they, they're not quite aware of the fact that the indian government the sri lankan government will will be very keen supporters of all of these good sounding things because they know what they can do in their own countries using that language to stifle political dissent well you know here's the funny thing so india had the previous government the manmohan singh government had enacted this uh, law which had section 66a which was a very broad uh, interpretation of freedom of expression and, and curtailing of it and it became most famous when somewhat some two young women had liked a post by somebody else on facebook and they were arrested so you know and then it was brought to justice and eventually and in fact the modi government when it came in yeah. actually supported um the repealing of this section saying it because at that point don't forget the bgp was most uh vocal on social media and in their campaign so they, they didn't want anyone coming in the way of anything that was described as uh, as hurting religious sentiment and such like anyway cut to now they're bringing 66a back that's their idea uh to to sort of comply with the with the with the uh, universal efforts to try and contain misinformation so i'm saying that it's interesting how these things play out um Look, I mean, we know this for a fact in, in the Sri Lanka context, in, in our campaign on trying to get rid of the PTA, the yeah. Prevention of Terrorism Act. Yeah. We know for decades it's been misused. When we speak to governments, they will always say, but in compliance with the counter-terror leg legislation that the UN adopted, but Sri Lanka absolutely needs a counter-terror law. Yeah. So, okay, fine, let's try to tweak this PTA. And the tweaking of PTA is not going to get anywhere, but because, you know, we know that it's the intent. The law can exist in whatever form. There is the intent and the poor intent, in which case the law needs to be changed. So, therefore, you know, these debates will continue. So, I'm, I am saying that, yes, misinformation is a problem. Yes, states might need to, uh, in the with the best will in the world, might want to... Um, suggest that there should exist this law we also know that there isn't the best will in the world it is almost always self-serving whether it is the state whether it is the company whether it is uh you know uh, an external actor trying to intervene in an internal situation uh you know all of these situations these things are going to be manipulated so the end result i suppose if you don't want to despair is at which point will the customer will the consumer yeah. become better informed no, I agree with you. But on that point, I want to kind of segue into something that you passingly mentioned, which is, you know, free speech. And I think that term is now used, or at least most recently used in the context of the proposed acquisition of Twitter by Mr. Elon Musk. And not a single presentation that or article or video or thing that he has put out, or even the most recent leaked video of the all hands on deck conversation that he had had with the company i think a week ago from the point of recording this gives me any confidence that he has an understanding of platform governance and oversight and um the matters that he's talking about um beyond a very simplistic basic understanding and the problem though is now that he is going to be the owner of a company that has a huge footprint in your country and mine. And if you come to the table with free speech as he has defined it, 
are you concerned around what that will mean in the context of what you just said are domestic regulations and legislations and regulatory frameworks and governments that are more interested in curtailing um, political dissent um, that might play very well with uh, what Mr. Musk says is only speech that transgresses a certain legal definition that will be yeah. taken off the platform. Well, as I said, in a maximalist world, sure, that makes kind of, uh, that would be great, but we know that there is the reality. So yeah, I mean, you know, to be the populist of a corporate world, you know, to be that, that make that kind of promise, then comes with the sort of healthy dose of, again, governance requirements because there are there you know one of the things that we know that uh, intermediaries are facing um are are the challenges of their staff security so you know when 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 amazon is told that oh some one of your shows has offended yeah. somebody or the other it is yeah. the amazon executive that is facing those cases at which point parent companies have to start sort of wondering about self-censorship or other kind of censoring so that those are the realities that almost every popular endeavor, populist endeavor deals with it's the same thing as saying oh i'm going to give you fifty thousand jobs but then you then people say oh well but the fine print is only for four years and then we have trains being burnt in india or you know we'll have fertilizer that is organic and we're going to be this perfect world and oops there are no right there is no rice so you know these are all these are all you know great ideas that might when when men not informed and not based on enough consultation in in and you know and and i suppose comes from earnestness you know the intent is very earnest and problem solving and i'm going to get this done and then you kind of say oh well you know grapple with the <laughs> with the facts and 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 oops so we are we are witnessing various kinds of oops already around the world yeah. and here possibly will be another one that would be an oops and then some correction i want to step back though and you know we are dealing with platforms that are now inextricably entwined in our DNA, you know, everything right. from marriage and love and sex to religion and politics, you know, is, is, is seeded and spread and engaged with and morphs and mergers and transforms the way we think of ourselves, our lives, our families, our communities, but they aren't from us. They're not of us and they're not made for us either. You know, where do you see Meenakshi this all heading towards? I mean, are we always, are we meaning South Asian, South Asia, are we always going to be an appendage, an afterthought to the discourse on Section 230 or across the Atlantic on the online safety bill or, you know, further afield with the European Union's disinformation thing? Are we always going to be called into the room as opposed to be front and center in the room, you know, given, you know, it, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we are we are what what props up these companies, but it doesn't seem to be the case that um whatever discussion or discourse there is, I think necessarily to kind of reform and regulate these companies, have us in mind. Well, you know, it's a broader context, right? I mean, and and I suppose it sort of leads up to something that you'd said earlier about uh, about our work. So what is human rights work and why is it that quite often we are being told, oh, well, you know, when people talk about human rights, we're interfering in the sovereignty of our nation or the integrity of our nation, or, you know, you. so it's because almost all of them are, this is process that is Western driven, this viewed as Western driven. So our South Asian governments and 
often it's the governments in the room when these negotiations take place so we have to speak to our to our governments to our elected leaders so then we have to say that what why are elected leaders always on the defensive mm. why are they not taking leadership roles because that is true right now um apart from china these the, the group of south asian leaders would possibly be representing the biggest block of 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 consumers for these platforms for this for the for these for these no so china doesn't they, come into the equation because the platforms don't exactly. operate in china yeah so yeah. they're not there yeah. okay. so apart yeah. from china the next yeah. lot of people yeah. is south asia this subcontinent yeah. now if this subcontinent cannot get its act together to be present in that room and is instant always or you know is is always being defensive you know then we will there will no be, not be leadership so we don't have the leaders we deserve mm. that is that is also the case there our leaders are almost always um you know being a little bit uh, of the turtle um you know they, as soon as they attack they sort of curl into it themselves and they don't want to be the one that steps forward because if they did in to go back to various parables they might even win right remember the hare and the tortoise they might even win but they don't they, we don't have that leadership we don't have the progressive leadership we have leadership that is so self-serving that they're only looking at their own domestic next election campaign they possibly are not driven by any kind of public good in the in the taking the long view and we don't have that so if we don't have that we're we're also ran aren't we you know what well, the irony is though that microsoft google twitter for the you know till musk musk uh, acquires the company they're all indians heading the company you know i might be missing out on 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 several other silicon valley companies as well you know they are indian origin <laughs> They're not Indian. Well, uh, in, in, well, in the case of, uh, of of Twitter, I think he, you know. Yeah, he was Indian. He, he was. Yeah. I don't but, you know. know. It, it does. You would think that I don't know. In my naivete, <coughs> I would think that there is a you know there is some sort of as I said my naivete, but I would think that there was some sort of a interest in in. Um, addressing even you know you keep saying profit right i mean at the end of the day there's academic research out now that suggests that what what really helps shift the needle on internal structural reform <laughs> is not you and i yeah it's a bad media cycle right so if only to avoid a bad media cycle you would think that these people would uh, look at south asia a bit more but they don't seem to be doing that well you know, Sajid, I'm 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 a I'm a little bit sort of uh, afraid of the token diversity arguments that many of many many enterprises seem to embrace because token diversity in in, it, in itself means that if you rise to a particular position, you are in fact um, still driven by the objectives of that particular enterprise and often possibly put a bigger test in some ways. Yeah. It's a bit unfair to believe that someone of Indian origin or an Indian who has risen to a high post will then get a different view because they will be driven by the need to succeed. And the reason I say this is because don't forget in South Asia, we've had a number of, I mean, across South Asia, we've had women leaders, you know, yeah. whether it's Bhutto or Sheikh Hasina or, or Chandrika or, or I mean, you know, we, we've, you know, South Asians have produced great women political leaders. Not one decided that they had to cater to the to, to, to women's rights. They just never, we never saw that happen. So therefore, I, you know, at that point, I suppose they become they become um, subject to the job requirements 
whatever those might be. So, so as much as these leaders did not speak to the rights of South Asian women in any way or contribute in any way, I don't see why, why you know, people, South Asians who are getting rising to high jobs are going to be focused. I would like them to, yeah. because that, that is the diversity argument. But I also know from experience, from our own experience, that that doesn't really occur. When they, once they get to that chair, then they're led by the chair. I mean, you know, just recent reportage about the Facebook's shenanigans in India would, would you know, I think would, would speak to your point. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to get into that because I think there's been a lot of media reportage, but, you know, I, I want to get to it tangentially, kind of also at the end of our podcast. The WHO coined the term infodemic, um, mm. and we may use it or not, we may call it information disorders or the longevity and the enduring nature of information, uh, disinformation, whatever you want to call it. I think that not unlike how some people are saying that we will have to learn to live with COVID-19, though it means very different thing. You know, there's a great deal of violence in the in the offhandish statement that some make that we need to learn to live with COVID-19. But for the purposes of, our, of the of the argument, let's say that we do. Um, I think there's a parallel in uh, digital landscapes as well, where we will need to learn to live with and deal with disinformation. And just like the biological virus, it is going to mean very different things to very different people in different countries and communities and cultures and contexts. With regards to what HRW does, knowing what you do and doing what you do, what are the implications of the long shadow of the infodemic exacerbated and amplified by the pandemic on South Asia, but also more, I mean, you know, just more generally as well on, on human rights per se, on first principles, on UDHR, and on, on all of this? Is it bleak, always destined to be at the margins of, uh, of, of whatever that we talked about nominally on a particular day on Human Rights Day celebrated, but for the other 364 days not, not really recognized? Um, are there new things that you think are going to be challenges, uh, you know, around the endemicity of information disorders? Or as you kind of throughout this podcast drawn a very nuanced uh, uh, landscape around the simultaneous interplay of help and harm. I mean, do you see some potentials as well? We do see potentials. I mean, look, uh, the thing is, one of the things that has happened is that nothing remains very secret anymore. You know, if we spoke about China, even yeah. from China, we are getting information now. So, so what has happened is that bad actors also need to at some point start fearing because they nothing remains secret, which is the good thing. And then, of course, there is that sort of anguished uh, misinformation claims that bad actors make. So, 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 so we, we see that already. So when we see that already, we do know that that there is a certain level of leaks of uh, and and which would not have happened earlier the populace that would like to live in a dark room and issue edicts and you know have people their citizens completely fall in line with the edicts no longer occurs because people start talking and things come about so therefore there is that is perhaps our biggest um tool as well on human rights it is it is the fact that we can that there, there aren't that many secrets our next challenge, of course, is to, to make people believe in rights again. And that's the problem, because I think as 
and this is partly perhaps pandemic is going to do more to it, is that we've become very siloed. We've become very internal looking. However much we might be connected through technology to people, in individual interactions, we've become much less. And therefore, we don't care. You see, unless we know that our neighbor has been thrown out of their house unfairly, we will not care about that neighbor because it's all, you know, in, in the ether somewhere. And then we can, we can sit in our, boil in our little bit of hate with great satisfaction because we're not out there. So therefore that, I don't know how it will change, but perhaps we will need to start talking a lot more and finding new language about rights. Um, where are we headed in the end? Incitement to violence is, has always been our biggest red line. Incitement to hate and therefore violence has been our biggest challenge, right? Because that is what these messages have done. They brought people out and started, you know, what what in India is called lynching, but yeah. that kind of thing, right? Well, in Sri Lanka so, too, actually, Sri Lanka too. Yeah. So, um, and which is a weird term, but you know, but it's become sort of South Asian, and everyone says lynching. But but it is. I mean, it's basically mob that feels enabled to come out and kill somebody. And, you know, some get punished, some don't get punished. But mm. the fact that the act even occurs, mm. that you are able to sort of engage in that level of brutality mm. is something that we uh, that is incited and, and fanned is where our challenge lies. And as much as it, any self-serving uh, political establishment or structure or narrative might enjoy that when it's serving them, it changes. You see, everyone is it's like democracy at some point you know, you start, things change, things shift. And therefore, we have to take the long view of this. But before we end, I'm still going to say that that while social movements and, and rights and public discourse and political structures happen in their own grammar, there is on the other side, companies that are driven by profit. And the accountability that they need to embrace is a different one. Because if you're going to be so smart that you're going to put your product in the hands of, of three or four billion people, then you're smart enough also to create the math that is going to prevent hate. It's just that you're not investing in it. You're not putting the resources to it. And therefore, that accountability, that is on you. So I don't, I'm not absolving you, is what I'm saying. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, listeners won't 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 obviously um, be tuned into my facial <laughs> responses or yours, for that matter. But you know, I you know I gave a look of incredulity because, you know, what what shred or modicum of evidence can we think of to hold up that argument of yours, Minakshi, in, you, know, you know, in the decade. Over the decade of of you know it, it's actually in 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 recent biographies of Mr. Zuckerberg, right? I mean the the greatest levels of harm in Myanmar, Sri Lanka, and in India, or the foundations for what we see today, happened right. at a time when the company called it growth hacking, right? I mean right. they were only interested in accelerating the market capture. And oh yes, I mean, I've, I mean, I've met, I've met Facebook executives who have blatantly told me so. So no, I mean, there is no, there is no question of. But that said, look, we, you know, every every company at some point um, pretends that it does good, right? I mean, there is a sort of the the tip of hat towards CSR, the veneer of it, yeah. So, so you know, who knows? I mean, you know, but it is for us. I, if they are driven by profit, then we as the consumer 
have to start um, demanding more or, or find other businesses, right? You know what the irony is though, that you, know, you and I both, it, as, and, and all activists, all human rights organizations, United Nations and governments also, I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing about the hashtag, you know, delete Facebook that crops up every time that there's a whistleblower from the West who says X company has done this, or, you know, has has resulted in uh, hate, hurt and harm and violence and death. Um, the West's response is to get away from that platform. Yeah. And, you know, it's farcical for those of us from from South Asia. And, you know, it 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 does occur to me that um, we use the platforms that contribute to the harm for our work as well. Is you know that it's ironical, isn't it? We can't do without these platforms, mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose there's 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 some way forward um, in that regard that is a bit more nuanced than the, the than the Manichaean worldviews. You know, the deplatforming versus you know the, the the black and white that kind of dominates the discourse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, look. It depends, and that's what I'm saying. That you know, right now for me, for Facebook, for instance, I'm still on Facebook, but it's it's a bit of a digital contactless. You know, I mean, I don't, for instance, I have your email, but it's much easier for me to find you on Facebook and text you. Right? I mean, because I know you're right there, and I don't have to worry about you know contact and phone number. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's you know, they're they're a glorified uh, digital diary for me. So <laughs> others. So, you know, it's not where I go for information or anything. But yes, I do understand that a lot of our clients, a lot of the communities we serve are on those platforms. And therefore, we have to use those platforms to service those communities. That's true. That's our job. But yeah. in terms of personal choice, that is my choice. So therefore, I'm saying that people will start yeah. making those choices. Eventually. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, just on the point of Facebook, though, please don't contact me on Facebook. I don't check. <laughs> you know, my doctoral research was a, was a curious thing. Um, I looked, as you know, uh, very hard uh, around the role, reach and relevance of Facebook and Twitter uh, on, on, on Sri Lanka's uh, violent outbreaks and constitutional crises. Uh, and as a consequence, I got thoroughly disgusted with Facebook. So I still on it because I can't get away from it. Right. You know, because as you said, you know, it's useful for it's, it's integral to the work that I do. But, you know, I, I, I don't put anything personal on it anymore. Uh, so, you know, these are strange words that we inhabit, I suppose. Uh, but very interesting, Minakshi, as ever. Um, thank you for drawing a nuanced picture of our region, um, which is something that is so often sorely missing from the debates that at least I am connected to and engage with on some of these issues. Um, thanks again for taking the time during a sabbatical uh, and good luck with everything in your country, mine and South Asia. Yeah, thank you. I consider all of South Asia mine and I'm always, I'm always seeking good, good vibes. We, we deserve better than we have. Right we, we, we absolutely. What a, what a, <laughs> what a, what a fantastic note to, to end this on. Thanks, Vinatri. Thank you.